Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast. Just the right amount of cowbell. None. There's none. There's no cowbell. <laughs> what is that? Blue Oyster Cult? What is it? Oh, I only know cowbell from the Saturday Night Live skit. Right, but they're doing a, they're like pretending oh, to be the, the band. In this I thing. don't even know. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. It's, be, it's beyond me. You know what's not beyond you, Quentin, though? The fact that this show is brought to you by the good folks at Dinese and AGV. And uh, their D stores are located in San Francisco, Orange County, Chicago, and now Orlando and New York as well. There's another store coming in Los Angeles very, very soon. Right on. So I haven't seen you like I'm 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 exhausted. This is gonna be like a low energy podcast for me. I gotta rally a little bit because I've been on the road for the last week and you've been graciously taking care of my cat in that time period. Uh, I wouldn't so, say I've been taking care of the cat as much as I've been taking care of the cat the devastation that she stuff. brings with her. Uh, cat, so I want to publicly functions. publicly thank you for doing that because that was no small task. Yeah, and it's not that bad. She's super cute, so it makes up for all the turd drops and whatnot. <laughs> the thir- 13 pounds of destruction. <laughs> I weighed her today. She's she at 13. Yeah. So yeah. we should tell the listeners, so a part of our, our Superbike Deathmatch, which we're in the middle of doing right now, Quentin and I, you and I head to the track tomorrow to, t- to do the next, I think it's our third round. Um, so we're going to start trickling that info out to you guys. But part of this is is I got these super accurate two wheel scales to to weigh the bikes, and it's cool because you get not only the the actual real world weight of the bikes, but it also tells you how much is on each wheel, so you can get the front end rear wheel front end rear wheel bias. Yeah, sure. Which is showing to be very interesting. But the fun part is you can actually you can you can weigh a, a cat on it. Sure. Thir- Thirteen pounds on the nose. Anyways, enough cat talk. Let's talk about some motorbikes because i just did uh i went and down to laguna seca one of our favorite tracks to go watch some world superbike racing and i uh, had a pretty eventful week of that and then stayed on for a track day with uh pirelli that pirelli was putting on for media we probably and VIP. had the same conversation last year i think that's right? probably something similar because you didn't you didn't come down no, that for that either i don't either. think i was at laguna last year no, no. i don't think so either i know world superbike i would i don't know i don't know and so it all goes by in such a blur i wish i could have been there but at the same time i rode dirty bikes and i was right i was fine right <laughs> so all right I'm, i wish i could have been there for that pirelli track day that looked like that would have been really fun and I also would have been able to poke Camming and be like, Camming, I want to ride your MotoGP bike. Hey, Camming, can I ride your MotoGP bike, right? Because he took the uh, the Rossi bike that he has out it's there. It's a GP12. 11 or 12. Yeah. I think it might be 11. The key with that, though, is you have to get it started. Yeah. Because he comes out and he's like, oh, yeah, I can't get the bike started. It's got this crazy starter and it needs yeah. 12 volts for the ECU and then 24 volts to run the motor or something like that. And his batteries were dead because he hasn't used them in like a year or whatever. But he got it going. Well, yeah, because we went and found like some car batteries and yeah, made it happen. He was ready to pack it up and call it a day. We're like, no, 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 no. This no. is a problem we can fix. We have to hear this spike. I mean, that's where the only yeah, it has to right. And yeah. it, I, I saw a couple of video clips. Yeah, it's an amazing sound. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing because if we can if we can sidetrack a little bit because it is almost like looking into the future of one of our favorite brands because obviously uh, one of the things I went to while I was at. Laguna Seca was the launch of the Ducati. Oh man, get ready for a name. Ducati 1299 Panigale R Final Edition. 
FE, just call it. FE. The FE. Panagalia FE. Which is interesting, and if you want to get a V-Twin Ducati that's a superbike, that's probably your last chance to get one for a while. Unless you want a 959, which probably do you just as well as any 1299 and they'll probably continue making that for a while right the 959 yeah yeah so so that's what we should talk about so i actually got to sit down and talk to claudio uh boss man did you Ducati. do an interview yeah but like on recorded on my phone yeah oh okay but what is it can we put that as part of the podcast yeah we could probably do that no yeah, you should you should some it's of kind it. of all over the place because i was recording for a story not recording for yeah, but it might be added value. We'll see. Um, but we had a good conversation. So most all the good stuff out of that conversation, I should say, was in my story um, that I published on Asphalt and Rubber about the the V4. So I don't know if we need to no. dish it or not. But you can go you can go read the quotes. But there were some interesting things that came out of it, right? So and one of the things we talk about is the the nine five nine and kind of how that's still a place for it. So the whole point of the the Panigale final edition is the fact that Ducati is moving on to the V4. And this is the first time that Claudio and anyone at Ducati has been really forthright about it. I think in the past it was kind of like... An out-and-out out lie that he was like, no, we're not going to make oh, a V4. we're not going to make a V4. Can't, we, can't you easily dredge up the, the oh, things yeah. in there? Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, they're going to make a V4. Yeah, they're going to make a V4. Right. And they're making a V4. And it's... And it's, it's I've been working on a story today, and I was hoping to get it out tomorrow. I don't think I will in time. But it's... It's a really interesting turning point in time for the company and and what the V4 platform, and that's the key word here, platform, means for Ducati and how it affects the rest of the lineup is going to be, it's going to be really interesting to watch. Um, and Claudio and I had this conversation about, okay, so the 9.5, well, first of all, let's talk about like the Super Quadro, right? So the outgoing Superbike engine is the Super Quadro. This is the, literally means over square. Um, made for high rpm race use basically right and you know one of the things ducati does really well is it takes its super bike engine platform and then uses that as the legacy engine platform for the rest of the street line after it's kind of done its time so the testostrada engine is basically the engine in its various forms that fuels the entire water-cooled ducati lineup and the engine that preceded it the um testostrada evo well, I was thinking of the air-cooled, uh, what do you just call it, the Desma uh, Due. Well, a 1000DS motor. Yeah, you know, you see that is, you know, kind well, of uh, all right. in different uh, shades. I'll, of, I'll say, I'll, I'll go a little bit further. So the first um, the first four-valve was Desma Quattro, and that would have been the 916. Mm -hmm. That trickled 916, 748, 996. Then it became ST4, and that was the 916. Uh, ST4S was a 996. And that, so that would be a good example of how they use the water-cooled four-valve superbike engine. They had to change it, uh, not significantly, but enough, where cams, pistons, r crank, even sometimes transmission, et cetera. Uh, but the cases are the same. But the cases are basically the same from everything from 1979, Panta 6-whatever, right? So and they've iterated on this engine, that engine, that degree of engine, until the 1098R. Or until the 1198, uh, essentially. So the uh, 1198 was the Testostrada uh, Evo engine. So uh, uh, the the 999 was the one after the uh, Desmo Quattro. And that was the first Testostrada, so small head, Testostrada, small head. Um, and it ended up in, you know, like a Monster S4RS. 
it didn't make its way into too many other things other than the, the 740 or 749 and 999. It wasn't like it, it but, but the later one, holy crap, the Testostrata Evo ended up being the bones for all the Multistratas, all the Diavels, uh, your hyper, everything, but you know, significantly changed within these. So, yeah, they have a great history of doing that. But that was with an engine that started in 1979 or 1980. That's, that's what was of note for that. For the Panigale, that thing is so limited because it makes barely any sense to put it into anything other than a, a, a high-revving uh, use case. And the use case to put that in, I don't know, a hyper? Yeah, maybe. Maybe on a something that's made to be speedy, a super, uh, uh, like a Street Fighter or a Hyper Motard, maybe. But then to put it in a, a Multistrada? Eh, no, I can't. I can't imagine that. And so, that's, and that's, that's uh, I'm glad you put that out there because that's exactly what, what, Claudio was talking about, you know. So I asked him, like, what's going to come of the super quadro engine now that you, you're moving on to the CV4? He was basically, you know, he didn't say it in these exact words, but the 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 effectiveness of it is, it'll live on the 959 Panigale, and that will continue to evolve, and that's about it. The future models that come from Ducati that aren't the superbike models, to to an extent, the I should say the future V twin models that come from Ducati that that um, aren't the 959, will continue to use some iteration of the Testa Strata motor. What's interesting is the fact that the V4 won't be only for the Superbike. It'll also be used in other models within the yeah, Ducati sure. range, and we can probably... You know, speculate to, to all day about, yeah, bring, about bring what those bikes a, could a be. A street fighter would be like immediate because you can see it's what easy. the, the Tuono is just beating the shit out of everybody. I mean, as far as being better, so the Ducati needs to get in on that. Uh, even if it, even if it's not a huge sales thing, it's just part of a, a, a range of product. The Multistrada, I could easily see it um, for sure. Right off the bat, I could see. Uh, you know, the the Multistrada has swollen up into. Unfortunately, uh, a behemoth heavy, I hate them. I hate the new Multistrada, straight up. I hate anything that has been this DVT, this compromised shitbag DVT engine that doesn't do the job it's supposed to do, which is give you awesome torque and awesome power. It just gives you more weight and makes the bike lumbering and heavy and complicated and heavy. Whereas uh, the previous generation Multistrada 1200, yeah, it was complicated and it was still pretty heavy, but it had a better motor. Uh, so it, I'm I'm glad to see them getting away from it because I think they just went down that path of trying to make that motor do too many things and it compromised it and made it complicated and heavy. So if the V4 can be a simpler way to get that done, uh, great. And I, my, my fingers are crossed because I think they went right off the path. And the Ducatis should be light above all, above everything. That's one thing they always had was that they're lightweight, and they they got away from that. And I I think that's sad. And that's and that's where the the nine five nine makes a lot of sense. Like I, I think like the in terms of segmenting and, and comparables, like it's really hard to place the nine five nine. But if you just think of it as a track bike, oh uh, dude, it should go in the like, it, we should have it as a weird buy at the end of the superbike deathmatch. Like that's how much I put into that. I think that would be like. Of course, we would do ultimately a super dyke death match. You assume, match. Quentin, that we would be allowed to do such a thing. No, oh, yeah, right. Well, we just have to find somebody that has one, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that would be like that bike's legitimate. It it'd probably be easier to deal with than the twelve ninety nine. Be more tractable in a lot of ways. I don't know. Anyway, that's that. That's how good that bike is. That at least we would consider it because it's up there. I bring it up only because 
it's one of those bikes where, okay, it only makes 160 horsepower, but because of Ducati's ability to make the V-twin platform so light. Yeah. That it's like, yeah, well, you know, yeah, it's got a lot more displacement than like a 750 Gixxer or like an 800 triple or something like that. You know, whatever that formula is, it's got a lot more displacement, but it's still, it's still like one of the lightest bikes in those segments because Ducati has figured out how to make a twin nice and light. And Hey, if we can make it bigger and not like sacrifice weight, what's the issue? Why should we be constrained to these rules and kind of stuff? So it kind of makes sense from that perspective, but seeing that Ducati is going to come out with a V4 to have the 959 V twin, to have a one liter V4 superbike, and then there's all these rumors that there could be like a 1200 cc superbike, or I think it's just going to be a 1200 cc V4 that yeah. could fit into like a Multistrada or sure. a Street Fighter or whatever that is. If that ends up being a superbike model as well, I I don't think that makes as much sense. I think keep the superbikes within the FIM. Yeah displacement regulations because sure. otherwise like i that's one of the things i hated the most about the pentagon I'm like so it's a 1285 that's weird but the race bike's 1199 all right whatever. yeah it's confusing and, and generally stupid but i could also see them punching it out for you know when it's the v4 final edition v4 <laughs> final edition. eight years from now or something i could see them you know making some monstrosity out yeah. of it eventually right however big they can bore it etc cetera, etc cetera. that they have to leave them room for that crap too but i think it'll it'll be good for them it'll be a thousand right it has to be there, a thousand. there's gonna be one of the versions has to be a thousand there's a lot of talk that there'll be like a homologation version that's a thousand and non-homologation versions that'll be 1200 I'm not so certain about that. I think we will see that motor in a 1200cc size. I'm just not convinced that that will be on the superbike chassis. I think that could be something for something else. Yeah, sure. But, you know, wait and see. Um, Claudio was very interesting to talk or hinted very interestingly about what could be on the inside of the motor. We know that it's going to be based off Ducati's MotoGP program and... um, you know, he was talking about how they're going to be doing some interesting things with the firing order for it to be somewhere between a V-twin and a V4 in characteristic. And if you look at their MotoGP program, they kind of have this um, interesting, it's not a bi- a true big bang or what they call it, twin pulse firing order for the V4, but they have something that's big bang-like. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the, the, the firing and timing sequence of the, uh, the cylinders will be. Cause I don't think it's going to be, it's not going to be a screamer. I can tell you that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what, what they bring to market there and how that's different from say what a different Italian manufacturer is building right now. I think they should quingle it. All, all four pistons rise and fall at the same time and they all bang at the same time. It'll be, instead of a twingle, it'll be quad quingle. Yeah. Quentin rides a Quingle. I'd be stoked. <laughs> That's my mind just exploded. My mind just exploded. But it, it got me thinking because I mean I don't know what the final order is going to be, but like you could think of a V4 engine as just two V twins next to each other, counter rotating crankshafts. You know, do all these kind of cool little things, and like that would kind of make Ducatista happy in a way. We're like, well, yeah, sure. If you it's made not it that far, it's not that far different. If you twinned it out, like both of them rising, falling at the same time, both firing. It's, I mean. I don't understand that, or I can't pretend that I would understand quickly the stresses that that would induce on a bike like that, on a on the crank journals, on the whatever. I mean, I'm trying to think of how it would balance, and I don't think it would balance very well, but I'm not sure. It would be interesting to talk to somebody that can run the calcs on if you uh, had 
the left bank and right bank, or I should say forward bank and let's call it in Ducati terms, horizontal and vertical banks firing at the same time. Because that's an L twin. Yeah, it's an L twin, right? Um, (laughs) It's firing at the same time. And that would be, it's funny you joke about that because today I watched a video where somebody was trying to make a case for why uh, there's certain boxer engines, right? So a, a true boxer engine is where the saying a, a BMW flat, it's basically everybody calls all flats boxers. This person was trying to make a differentiation between a boxer and a 180 degree V twin. And I'm like, if it's 180 degrees apart, it isn't a fucking V any longer, so you can shut the F up. That's so stupid. No, because we already know that at 90 degrees, it stops being a V. And it becomes a different letter. <laughs> it's an L. It's an no, L. No, that's that's not true at all. Anyway. I don't recommend shaking babies, but if I could go back in time and have those and find those people when they were childlike, I would sh- just shake, shake it them. out of them. I'd shake this, the L twin one, right out of them. Yeah, this one is weird. I'm just going to finish this thought so you guys can understand. If you go to, if you look at a and a, a Subaru engine, most Subaru engines, yeah. or the BMW, when the pistons. Uh, and one of those engines are going in and out. They go in and out at the exact same time, so it looks like they're boxing. So the the pistons fall to the to bottom dead center and and rise to top dead center at the exact same time. Whereas Ferrari, when they had the their Berlinetta boxer, their boxer motor started with that, which was a flat V12 back in I don't know, mid mid late seventies. It actually had where the pistons would go uh basically follow each other instead of go against each other they would uh one would be at, at bottom dead center and the and the corresponding one on the other side would be at top dead center so there's a wiggle They'd yeah ride the wiggle. The wiggle wiggle they'd ride the wiggle so that was what this person was saying oh so that makes it 108 and i get their i get i understand the terminology i get why they're trying to say that but just the fact that you're saying it's a 180 degree v it negates your whole that stop and think about that it's, for a it's second. just a flat engine okay so maybe it's not a boxer but it's fucking flat anyway so the, does that make like a like like an inline four or an inline six or whatever like a zero degree twin yeah right <laughs> is a parallel twin just an in like a zero degree twin can oh, we call God. that now right and that would be when the difference the madness end quentin that would be the difference between the 270 degree crank on a uh, on most of these parallel twins that's happening now yeah because that mimics a, a 90 degree twin very quick very easily it's like almost the same whereas a, a rise and fall same um uh, you know like the, the farting horrible sound of most parallel twins you you name the kawasaki or Suzuki GS500 and Kawasaki EX series and all that. Yeah, that would be the the zero degree. Oh God. I don't let's stop it. That's just this is a dumb conversation <laughs> on camera. All right. Let's let's <laughs> so, so that <clears throat> bottom line is the Ducati. This uh, very sounds like a very exciting thing. Any anything more from that? The only thing I could thought of that might be interesting is um and I'm kind of blanking on which haunt it is. Is it the RC forty five that has little old pistons? The the <clears throat> the NR NR750 had NR7. oval. Yes. And that and, was and by oval it was like basically like two pistons kind of turned into one. They Siamese them. Yeah. There were two rods per piston. Right. And they were doing that to mimic a V8. Right. That way they could get the high RPM. I don't remember what the firing order was on that thing. I I think that was still that was late 80s early 90s so it could have still been a screamer. Um, but I don't know. I, I, that'd be a worthwhile thing to to look for. Because that was the only thing I was sitting there thinking about with Claudia when we were having the conversation when he's talking about how it's like a V twin, but it's also like a V four. When it's like, well, wouldn't that be interesting if you just 
use two small cylinders to mimic what you were doing with one big cylinder and yeah. then just kind of that's why it out. that's that's why i said it that's right. why i said right, right, it right. makes sense where they would at least think about rising falling at the same time make it a twin yeah. in, a, in a strange way make the firing order the same I, I don't know how much that makes sense, but you know what? It could end up being really good on the street for sure. Would, I would guess that that would trickle down to being a better street engine than than it would be a race engine. And that's and that's another thing he kind of brought up was like how he talked about how the vibration and how the drivability and all these things were going to be very you know positive. And it's, he's like you know straight up he's like this is this is a better engine. It, it is. There's a lot of compromises to V twins. And uh, not enough for me not to love them. So we'll see. We don't have time, we'll tell. We don't have to wait that much longer. Nope. uh, Because A&R will be scooping those stories any day now. You'll be showing the pictures before you know it. Oh, man. Much to the ire of... of I don't don't think Claudio likes me that much, to be honest. I think he's like... Oh, no. God, this guy. This this one. This fucking guy. Uh, Every time with the the questions and the photos. (laughs) (sighs) Where's that, where's that gun? Let me deep, go find that gun. Deep deep side. <laughs> I had my chance. <laughs> deep side Beeler. Uh, that's all right. We have a good time. Um, other World Superbike stuff. Inter- boring race. Snoozer. Yeah. Chaz Davies racing with a broken back, though. Gnarly. Awesome. Totally legit. Full full faith and credit there. The Kawasaki's are, are on a tear. That was the thing that surprised me the most, especially in race two, was how strong Johnny Ray was. Had a good sit down with the... Um, the head of World Superbike, Dorn's head guy at Superbike and, and the technical sporting directors there and had a conversation about kind of where that series is going. And I mean, like, they have a serious problem of you have two manufacturers that are taking this championship seriously. One's taking it way more seriously than the other. Obviously, Kawasaki doesn't have a MotoGP program. So they look at, yeah. you know, hey, spending $5 million in, in Superbike, that's not that big of a deal because we are not spending $50 million in MotoGP. Yeah, sure. Whereas Ducati's trying to do both. Um, but the rest of the brands, I think truthfully, um, uh, we had an article today by Kent and, uh, Kent Kunitsugu? No, Brockman on, on A&R. Okay. Uh, it was an A&R pro story. Okay. Got it. Uh, you know, kind of outlining it and, and just basically saying like, you know, you can talk about how the rules need to be changed and we can talk about spec ECU and there's talk about Dorna wanting to make it like literally a production series where it's like, you're rolling the bike off the showroom taking the lights off and that's what we're racing where it's basically back to world super stock kind of yeah rules which could make sense in some ways um but like you know truth be told and this was this was kent's kind of thesis was like the the real matter if you want the racing to be better the other manufacturers need to get up off their asses and get involved where are you honda where are you suzuki where are you yamaha you know mv augusta's got just as much you know um resources and energy putting going into their team as as some of these other manufacturers that have literally a hundred times the the sales volume and it's kind of a joke where it's like jake gagne is out there on electronics that like legitimately just are not world superbike spec and he's only a couple tenths a lap slower than his teammate who's a former moto 2 champion and moto gp rider i will say that's a testimony to jake and it's also a testimony to the, the U.S. race series. It's not as shitty as a lot of people think it is. Moto America, even though it doesn't have much provenance yet, still produces some rad people because there's still some gnarly tracks. You still have to race against some gnarly people. Josh Hayes is nothing, 
I mean, Josh and Cameron, you got to be like, these guys are gnarly good. It's funny you bring that up. So I have, uh, so this little cross teaser, I have a great interview with Josh Hayes coming up on the Paddock Pass podcast. He oh, and I cool. sat down and talked for, I think we recorded like 30, 45 minutes. We oh, talked for awesome. about two hours though. Yeah, that's super awesome. Everything under the sun. And that's one of the things he brought up where, and, and that we talked about was just like, there's no shortage of talent in Moto America. And even if you look at the times at, at uh, Laguna Seca, there's not a huge time difference no. between them, especially when you consider the budgets involved. Sure, and understand that there are two different tires that do. Yeah, two different the tires things. are different, but eh, it does, it's not that big of a deal. It, it would be in certain realms. In this case, they're both good tires, right? The World Super Spec Superbike Spec Pirelli is probably very evenly matched with the AMA Dunlop Spec tires that they're getting. It's not like you're talking about. Oh my God, tombstone, horrible, bad tires, right? So I'll say that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's. But so, Jake, well, back to your Jake, point about. Jake's, Jake, Jake's, Jake fast. Had a, Jake's fast, but I think he had a mountain to climb in terms of just getting up to speed. He did that, well, though. Didn't he score points? He scored points. I say that. And he wasn't too far I behind. Say, I say that thinking I'm not entirely no, he sure. Scored I think, I think for sure. sure in the first I think, race. I think he, he was 15th ish. Yep. And he did in the first race. And But the fact that he wasn't too far behind Brottle, who again. No, that's the thing, right? He's fast, and so that bike is obviously not uh, up and, to snuff. And you could see it. You could. I sat on. In fact, I just posted the, the photos today. Um, I sat at turn eleven and watched every, and shot photos coming out of out of there. And that's a great spot to see what the electronics are doing because it's it's a bus stop kind of of yeah. a turn onto the front straight. So it's all traction control getting out of the corner, wheelie control getting up onto the the curbs and, and accelerating down the the straightaway. And you can just see Jake battling that bike. Like it just didn't have the same technical prowess as as Brottle's bike and some of the other bikes. And then you go and you see the Cowie and the Ducatis go by, and it's on a different plane. You know, those bikes are in so much more control and are putting so much more power down. And you're just like, yeah, sure. You know, that's where the difference in the lap times are. Being well, made. and that's what they need to develop the bike, and they're they'll have a year's worth of data, and hopefully Honda and hopefully Red Bull. That's the big surprise for me is that they don't have. Red Bull money contributing to make those things fast no matter what, right? But maybe they're hamstrung by Honda is like, no, no, we don't want you to do that. We don't want to risk blowing up engines, you know? Well, you know, they got the, there's a lot of things going on there. I think, I think one, it's not a factory effort. So it's, it's a factory supported team. And that, it sounds like semantics, but it's a, there's a difference. Like it could be. I, I mean, shit, Tenkata won the world championship back in the mid 2000s and they weren't a factory team. So, you know, very, that, yeah, very good team, very good team. But if you're not getting the HRC support, if you're not getting new parts developed, if you're not, you know, they, they got their bikes like a week before the championship started, you know, silly things like that, where they're racing the first part of the season on a hybrid of 2017 and 2016. Yeah, then parts. you're always on the back foot, always. And that and was then, the thing that Nikki always complained about was like, this isn't a new bike. This is last year's bike with some new parts. And we haven't had enough time to test and develop these new parts. So we're actually slower than we were on last year's bike. We should be on last year's bike. It would be better. We, we'd be better off if we were on last year's bike because we've got more data and we've got more time and we've got more things. And we didn't have the time in the off season with the new bike and the new parts and the new things to make them, you know, what we needed them to be. Well, I don't want to go to a world superbike race and see super stock bikes. That's, that would be super disappointing. I, I, this, this goes to a larger discussion about how Grand Prix and, and, 
and World Superbike are kind of too close in certain ways. And the the difference between a 500 two-stroke back in the day when I first started watching racing was completely notable. Like it was it was a whole other world compared to the World Superbikes, right? Now they're kind of blurred. It's it's all thousand cc super bike looking stuff and sounds kind of the same and it's not that far right you could looks like you could put a kickstand on any one of those MotoGP bikes and you could probably ride it from from laguna seca down to los angeles if you wanted to i mean it's proof positive that camming is riding around and i know it's a tough thing to deal with but he can ride around on a 800 that bike is an 800 the one we keep talking about yeah. Um, at track days and it does it it's fine it does its job it's probably great i'd be surprised i'd love to know what it feels like i'm sure it's way more of a knife edge than um any any given other uh, bike that's out there but it's still doable because it's a four stroke try the same shit with a, a 500 grand pre bike from the same era oh forget about it speaking of which got to have a very long time looking at the, the uh, suitor, suitor yeah. mmx 500 that is a beautiful machine. Yeah, you, would, you would really enjoy looking at it because all the, I mean, it's a beautiful bike from afar, but it, it gets better when you're up close because you look at all the little details in it and like from a me- mechanics perspective, sure, all the little details on how the wires are tucked away, how the ECU is is put on the frame and hidden behind the, the, the how the fairing is being attached with these little, you know, spacers and things like that rather than like a bracket on. Like it was funny, um, I'm bringing it up because Kenny Jr. was there and he's looking at it. And he was talking about his uh, Suzuki race bike, Kenny yeah. Roberts Jr. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's that's so great on the Suzuki, man. There's a bracket for a bracket, and it's on another bracket. And then we had to make another bracket for that to hold it all together. And it's just da-da-da-da-da. And you look at the suitor, and it's just like this like perfect. Everything's just perfectly thought out and machined and meticulously put together. And it, like, it really makes a lot of sense. And like the details are really exquisite. Um I tried to show that in the photo gallery I posted up, but I don't know. I don't know how much of that bike will ever translate from in person to digital. And that's a hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, hundred thirty-nine, hundred thirty-five, something like that. No, hmm. beautiful. Sure. Weird display because it's like a five seventy-eight CCs or something like that. It's more than five hundred. Huh. Which is kind of weird. I wonder why they they came up with that. because they don't have to give a shit, and it probably just worked out really well. It's really optimizing the the bore stroke ratio on a two strokes critical. So maybe they figured, you know what, the best way to do this is going to have this CC size and do it this way. And oh, we got to make a change to the rods, or oh, we got to make a change to the the crank to, in order to change those rods. So we're going to have to have a different throw. You never know. It could have been uh, many different things yeah. that they change it. Oh shit! In order to get the port timing. Uh, we're going to have to do this. And they then they had to screw around with the displacement to suit it. You never know. Or they, or they just didn't give a shit. And we're like, I just want this number because this is my lucky number. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the Swiss people do that. No? Yeah. Hey, what was the Swiss uh, electric dirt bike? Do you remember? Oh, it started yeah, with the Q. yeah, yeah. Um, Quant, yeah. Yeah. Met a guy today that came up. Uh, from Northern California to have his Alta, uh, I had to do a firmware update and the person is nowhere near a dealer and his bike is an early VIN and he's been riding it for almost a year. Um, 
And so it needed a very specific, I had to retime the motor, which uh, only so many people have the uh, laptop for that. So he comes in, we're chatting and I'm- When you say retime a motor, what the hell are you talking about? I have to retime the electric motor because they, you know, the, the way uh, internal permanent magnets, the way the magnets flux with the coils uh, is critical. So it, the timing has to be done. Oh, okay. You see okay. what I mean? Yeah, I got so you now. So it actually has to be timed. And okay. it's a very strange process. Because they're going like, there's no timing belts. No, there's nothing. No, no that makes sense, though, because you have to get the, the fields to go. Exactly. And, and you switch, and it's all about switching it's polarities exactly. and all that. So okay. the, the, the bike has to have a zero point, so I have to run this really strange. I have to open up a terminal, terminal and a Unix uh, computer. Shell. What a Unix shell kind of thing. I don't. I, yeah. You you would know it better some than me. Shell commands. Yeah, I don't. All Turtle I, shells. I, all I have, snail shells. Yeah, I don't know anything about there. There's raspberries in there somewhere, right? <laughs> Do you open up a shell and get a raspberry instead of a pearl? Is that the deal? <laughs> so isn't that the thing? Raspberry cake or something? Raspberry pie. Raspberry pie. Okay, right. That's another. Anyway, so I have to go in and do some space invaders with this to get. And then you you press the button and the bike. It's funny the rear the, the it'll go tink 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 and the mo the wheels moving and it does that for like fifteen seconds. But it does it in like staggered. It's going tink 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 and then it feeds back the numbers and anyway. Sorry, going getting too deep into this. But and then you're in MySpace and you're like, how did this? How's MySpace <laughs> still going right now? And like, <laughs> right? Uh, what the fuck? No, it's good. And yeah, then you swipe right. Now you have a date on Friday night. <laughs> So I'm talking with this guy and he is an early adopter, obviously. And this is somebody that had put down a deposit early on and then apparently hounded the crap out of Alta to get a bike early. Um, so I ended up with a super early VIN that got released with super early firmware and all the other stuff that so I got to got to hook him up and he was stoked. This guy was so extreme that he had a headlight on the bike. But on that bike, on that early of firmware, we didn't even have the 12 volt circuit available. It was the plugs there, but it wasn't enabled. It was so early. He had already. This is like pre production then. It was. Well, it, went, it was early production. I'll okay. say it's early production. So he had a, a battery pack, lithium polymer battery pack that he had already built from some other thing that he created because he does this type of stuff, uh, hooked up right to the headlight. Uh, to a Baja Designs headlight that he he just charged up that battery. Didn't even use the one on the bike. I was I was so stoked because you don't. What does he do? Does he just hit like a switch on the light? Yeah. Like, lights headlight yeah, on. Had a switch on the light. Literally it's like a flashlight, basically taped to the Absolutely. front of his bike. Absolutely, you could just take that thing right off the bike and that, use it as a flashlight. That would be like the. <laughs> That would be like the Mulder and Scully light from X Files, where it was just like that ridiculously bright light that was like attached to a car battery. That sure. they like had I think like they call every that a, scene. I think they call that a Q beam, actually. Do they? Really? I'm not even kidding. Right. So Christ. that that it was just an intro, and on the top of his Sprinter was a huge solar cell, huge, a and huge, huge, huge. It was huge. It was it was the it was the most beautiful was solar cell. It was the best solar cell. So he um he was he charged bikes on them. With with a solar array, he could charge one of the bikes in like three and a half hours. It was really bizarre. Uh, with another solar array, not the one on his car, but another that he had an inverter for. He was just kept on going. And I'm not, I haven't been in this electrical realm for that long. He's he's knee deep. Though. This guy this has been in it. And he talked about these, whatever the Q. Quantia. Quantia. And they'd had. Q-U-A-N-T-Y-A. 
And it's one of the only other electric bikes I've ridden. I've rode one of these really? back in 2009 in Colorado when we were doing a Ducati demo huh. because it was Swiss. And I couldn't remember what the hell it was until this guy said it this morning. And there wasn't that many I of thought them it over was a here. zero. I thought it was, I thought I had ridden a zero. And it turns out the bike that I'd ridden, because I remembered once he said it, oh my gosh, that must have been the bike I rode because uh, they were there at the same event as Ducati back in 2009. So it was really interesting to be able to talk shop with somebody that knows more than me about how to you know, electrify things, right? Because he had done a bunch. But he also had a Porsche 912, which is a four-cylinder variant of a 911 uh, that he had put a Subaru engine in. And he had one of the original uh, Ducati 750 GTs, uh, VIN 224, which I thought was 225, which is amazing. Early, early VIN, like 197, one of the first Ducatis ever produced V-Twin. Very fascinating gentleman. And he's on his way to Colorado to go ride dirty. And that was a, a cool... A cool thing. Uh, a lot, lot to talk about just to, to talk about that Quancha deal. But it makes me want to ride one of those, see what they're all about. But he, he was like, not yeah. in business anymore. Yeah, of course. He said that one of his buddies was a, a key investor, and they ended up getting a bunch of the bikes, and they have them um, where they live in California. But the Alta is what they were always looking for, and they're like, you know, we can't, we couldn't build one of these for three times the cost of buying it from Alta. So this is finally what we've always been uh, waiting for and they're stoked. So that was really neat. It's a good plug. Yeah. It's yeah, a good really, plug. Yeah. <laughs> send, send me yeah. a check, John. It's a good plug. No pun intended. Oh, oh, oh. All right. Oh. All right. Do we got to get to interview time? No, we're going to take an ad break. Okay. That's your punishment. Uh, punishing. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're blossoming late in the show, but I appreciate the, I appreciate the effort. Oh, uh. All right, let's uh we'll come back in a minute. <laughs> Quentin, this episode is brought to us by the fine folks at Dionysia and AJV. I don't know why they keep doing it because of your puns, but uh they they persevered nonetheless. Oh man, now I'm gonna have to come up with a Dionysi pun. That's kinda hard. I'm it ain't we'll Dionysi for me to do that. <laughs> Oh, geez. You know, it is not easy to do, though, <laughs> is head down to one of their factory stores. They have them in San Francisco, Orange County, Chicago, and now Orlando and New York are online with L.A. soon to come. They are staffed with experts on Dainese and AJV apparel to get you all kitted up. We ain't kitting around. <laughs> you got any more puns? You no, throw them no. some in there? No. Just sprinkle them in? No. But uh, they support this podcast. And you should just go support them with your hard-earned dollars. Please do. We thank them for their continued sponsorship of this show and uh, the good gear that they keep on making for motorcyclists around the world. So right on. Let's get back to it. All right, Quentin. Uh, we're back. Um, I'm going to do something I don't do very often. I'm going to do some little name dropping. Because I got to uh, ride around Laguna Seca which was awesome. No noise restriction. Yeah, big deal. Which was awesome. Especially on that Street Fighter, because I bet that thing is on my is Street Fighter, the meter. which was awesome. My Street Fighter is so loud. The clutch on that bike alone is super <laughs> loud. And then yeah. you throw on the the exhaust, and it's... there is. I brought that down. I hauled that thing down. I drove 2,600 miles this last week. Wow. And part of the reason of that was so I could ride this Street Fighter around Laguna Seca because it's the only time I'm ever going to be able to do it. Any other track day at Laguna, yep. I'm getting black flagged every lap no matter yep. how hard I try. Sure. Because it's just so freaking loud. 
Um, so it was cool to go do and see that. And uh, the good the good folks at at Arch Motorcycle Company let me pit with them. So I basically just kind of hung out with Keanu Reeves all day. Yeah, which was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. Uh, it was cool. It was cool. Uh, it's cool to see. I think Dax Shepard was out there as well from the Chips movie. Yeah, recent fame. Yeah. Uh, there's some other important people. We saw Adam Wahid, our friend and colleague. A lot of sure. other, a lot of other cool dudes. Rennie was out there, yeah. being super fast. Kenny Junior, not riding. I tried to get Kenny to go ride. No, he wouldn't. He was, he was. Not, he just had like shoulder surgery. Yeah, uh, shoulder surgery. Shoulder surgery. Um, but we did have a couple interesting exchanges about Kenny Senior, which is always <laughs> none of which I can repeat on the show. No. There's not many stories about that guy that are repeatable on the show. Just I like, don't think. We want to have we want to have continued sponsorship on the show, so we'll just <laughs> we'll just move right along. Uh, Tony Elias was out there riding. It was was super he? cool to see that on a like a street Jixer or something. I don't know what he was. He must have been on a Jixer. I, let's say he was on a Jixer just so he doesn't get any contract trouble. Let's put it that way. No, okay. I don't know. I don't know what he was on. I can't remember. Going there was a couple Hall Asser dudes with him. It was cool to see. I saw a, a a picture. I'm pretty sure he was on a black GSXR. It sounds right because Chris Ulrich was out there yeah. too on a GSXR 1000R, and they might have been sharing bikes. Sure, because they were doing like kind of tire testing. Oh, I know Chris was doing tire testing with Pirelli. I don't think Tony was, but yeah. cool to see see everyone out there. Um, great to ride the Street Fighter around. Um, Something happened to it. Well, one, I'm out of brake pads, oh. so I got to get some brake pads. Oh, okay, so um, that's the thing. But yeah, I had a little clearance issue with the chin fairing on turn seven or whatever it was Yeah, it drags man it drags you got to hang off that thing you got to get all the elbows out it didn't do anything wrong it just made <laughs> yeah you're a little you're like oh i scuffed it up and then i was like no laguna seca street, scuff street cred man yeah i got that scuff at laguna seca i mean when i tell the story it'll be in the corkscrew oh i was passing rossi in the corkscrew no, that's sure. fair like, you're talking one. about the going up the hill though <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's yeah, where mine did Super, super compressed. I sure. love that turn. You can haul ass. It's that a train. beautiful thing. Everything about that. I love every aspect of that track. There's not one part I don't like. The, of the track. Mm-hmm. The, the facility has a little bit to be desired. I, what's wrong with the facility? It's not a world-class. I mean, it's not a world-class facility. Oh, no, it's up. great for a track day. I'll say that. It's great for a track day. It's great for a track day. There's a bathroom there, right? And there's shade. Well, they're, they're trailer bathrooms, but yeah. Laguna is an interesting thing. And I was thinking about this on the way down and everyone's like, oh, when's GP coming back? GP is never coming back. You know why? Because Laguna Seca is not a world-class track. There's a old And it never will be. There's 20 other tracks that are, that are, that have better facilities. Like we were literally like the media center, just so like my perspective, right? This is a bad example, but it's what I, it's what I know. The media center, we were in converted car garages that had sealed windows, no AC and no fans. And it was 100 degrees. Well, it wasn't 100 degrees, but it was like, it was into the 90s. It was probably 100 degrees in the thing. It was in there. It was like, you know, like you watch like the old like chain gang movies and like the guy like does something on the like, send him to the box. And it's just like this like metal box. It's like out in the sun. Yeah. That was us. We were in a (laughs) giant gray box that was in the middle of the sun and it was 10 degrees hotter in there than it was outside. But that's actually a trade up because in the past we were just in a tent that had like AstroTurf on it. So it's hard. Like I understand, and I'm not like bagging on Scramp, and I'm not bagging on Laguna Seca. It's just you have to understand that like the realities of this track, like 
it needs massive amounts of money put into it to make it a world-class facility. And, and they it, did that. And they, they did it to the track itself back in 2004 or five when they right. brought GP, but and that was Yamaha, Yamaha did right? that for us. But yeah. then it never really got better as far as the, the facilities internally. No. And there's still like, and, then, and so that's actually one of the things that's kind of interesting now is the relationship between Scramp and Monterey County has changed a little bit where now Scramp just basically is just the, the management of the track. So the county has a lot more involvement, whereas before Scramp was the concessionary. And don't make me try and t- explain the differences between those two things, because I couldn't tell you even after it was explained to me. So that should tell you something in, in itself. But the end result is the county now has more of a vested interest in seeing the track do well. They they get it now, especially after uh, CSU Monterey published a, a study showing how much economic impact and how yeah. much direct spending there is done into the county for each event. I can imagine. And something like 12 or 17 million for just Superbike alone gets put into the county. Huh. And it's Let alone when Monterey Historic plus the thing, and the right? Sea Otter Festival and the on and on, all the things that have been going on I want to say it's like 57, 50, 57 million. That's 57 is the number in my head for some reason total just from those main events that's not counting track days and all the other stuff and then if you want to take like an economic factor into it it's like you know 150 million or whatever that's being dropped into the county and all the locals just hate it because i can imagine like what what it's like to live there and then a few times a year get this influx of gearheads in your oceanographic paradise right your your monterey aquarium is one of the best aquariums in the world and like i i could see where that quiet little sleepy little burg is all of a sudden just inundated with, yeah, probably rowdy, rowdy horrible people. <laughs> well, it was interesting. It was interesting to see um, this year, knowing things had changed a little bit, zero CHP presence. Oh, that's cool. You know, usually when you ride into the oh, track yeah. on the highway, constant, they are up on every single overpass, just staggered out, and they're just sending guys down and pulling people over left and right, yeah. usually motorcyclists. And for every reason under the sun. And it was a it's a known thing. Like, hey, if you're going to the track, five miles an hour under the speed limit, yeah, be cross cool. every be cool because they're gonna get you for every little thing in the world and there's no mercy. And it's the same thing, like the hotels are gonna gouge you left and right. And like it's interesting to see that now that the county has more of a vested interest in the success of the track, that things like that are better. Hmm. You're like, huh. Interesting. It's still one of the most magical places I've ever been as a motorcyclist. So that my first ride in there, I was alone on my CBR 600 riding up after work from Pro Italia. I started my journey and I was a technician at Pro Italia. I I can't remember where I spent the night. I think it was in like a Tascadero or Paso Robles and riding into there after a ride up the one, which I don't think you can do now because there's a a, a, mudslide, right? Yeah. So to to come into that, and it was it's, oh, it's just, it was so magical for me. I remember it very clearly, and then all the subsequent years of going there as um, shit as a technician for race teams, as a rider. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be, to be able to go all see it for so many Grand Prix Superbike races, all the Superbike races that I went to there. Oh my gosh. It's a it's an amazing place, and I, I I think it's absolutely it's more important than like Daytona, by a long shot. For I would say from a core sport bike person's 
view. Like you definitely need to go there. Whereas Daytona has waned enough to where you don't, there's nothing to see there. It's horrible. Daytona's like asshole of the United States compared to this place, right? This, this place is amazing. Look, I, if, I mean, I guess Coda is okay, but it doesn't quite have the, that, the, the vibe that that place does. I think, I think Coda is perfect for MotoGP and I think Laguna is perfect for a superbike. Now, yeah. granted, I think like some money needs to go into the facilities sure, and all still, that stuff. It's a good superbike, but track, like they, right? it wraps your head like and like the the fan experience that superbike is trying to give is way different than what MotoGP is trying to do. Yeah, and it just kind of suits Laguna a lot better. Like just that, like yeah, the paddock's smaller, but you can go and you walk around. Like it's one of the few, you know, racing events where like especially in the U S like at a world level where like you can go down and get into the paddock. Like you don't need to have a special pass to go yeah, super rad, hang out with like Johnny Ray and all these other people. And I think that's really cool. And I think that really helps make it a special event and differentiate it. Attendance was up this year. I think it was up like 6%, something like that. Good to hear. Not a lot bigger than yeah, uh better than not, years though. past, but it's growing. And truth be told, like I was looking at the numbers, Laguna is one of the larger venues for World Superbike. You know, we we kind of complain in the U.S. like, oh, it's only like a shell of its former self. I think it's like half the attendance of what GP brings. It's still a pretty big venue for for Superbike. So I don't think it's going anywhere on the calendar anytime soon. We'll just kind of have to figure out when on the calendar is, is best. Um, I feel super fortunate for having been there during the years when it was Troy Corsa on Aprilia, Hog on the Yamaha, the fucking Benelli at the time, Nikki Hayden racing against those guys because Nikki was on Superbike on RC51, Eric Bostrom, you know, that that time you'd be able to watch the AMA races and then the AMA racers race with World Superbike it was super phenomenal. It was a, I was super fortunate to be able to have seen that in that era. It sounds like it's pretty good now, but boy, that time, I think that was the halcyon time that late. 90s early 2000s was a really good time before grand prix came and then grand prix was great too it just was a different it's a different thing right it was a well i didn't like it as much i bikes are too loud it annoyed me i just have to deal with it right so especially as a as as a person working in the paddock when the motor gb bikes were rolling it was like what a pain in the ass to have to listen to these fucking things go all day while we're trying to work. So I never really got into it as much as a lot of other people did. But most people didn't know World Superbike. They would just come because it was GP and then it became a thing on, unto itself. All right. So with all that said, uh, you were able to, because you were in all partying with Pirelli the whole time, you were able to have a sit down with somebody from, from Pirelli. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how we, um, the reach of the Two Enthusiasts podcast is a lot bigger than we think it is. Oh, you so, think so? Uh, well, I sat down with Giorgio Barbier, who is the Pirelli... Not, not Bobier, not Cameron. It's not Cameron's dad. No. Barbier. Barbier. Okay. Uh, he's the Pirelli Moto Racing Director. So he's basically <laughs> he's in charge... He's head of racing for he's Pirelli? basically for head motorcycles. Of, of, for motorcycles. He's basically the, the big poobah for, for Pirelli tires. And in, in when it comes to racing, okay, um, which is pretty interesting because you know, as he describes in, in the interview, like he's like race selling racing tires is is a business for them. Like yeah, it's not sure. like charity, and it's you know, nope. They 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 approach it as a business, and it's a it's a what do you call it? A profit center. Yeah, as it should be. So that's an interesting perspective just to wrap your head around. But you know, he had some interesting things talking about Pirelli and the Superbike Championship, and he was on his way to um, Suzuka. Because the Suzuka ah. eight hours later this 
this, this coming yeah. week. Yeah. And so and you know, we should be there. We should be there. And we're no, idiots well. for not being there. Yeah, whatever. Next uh, year. Next year. Mark it on the calendar, which is what I've said like five years ago. No, right but now. this time I'll, I'll be there right next to you and be like, calendar, Bing! Suzuka, let's get on this. Tickets. Yep. So why? But, but you... it's interesting. Do you go from World Superbike, where Pirelli is the spec tire supplier, yep. to the World Endurance Championship, which is the only international championship where tire manufacturers compete against each other? Yeah, weird. Um, Didn't even think of it. Yeah, that's awesome. so it's interesting to hear his his take and his and and Pirelli's approach to those two championships and what they get out of it in terms of development and and things like that. So. Good stuff there. And when you say we have too, uh, a lot of reach with two enthusiasts, did he say, oh, yeah, I listened to this he, podcast? He made four or five pretty solid cat puns before we started. Stop it. No, he didn't. Okay. No, he didn't. Because right. he's, you know why? Yeah. Because he's Cause an he's, adult. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a good interview. It's about uh, 20, 30 minutes long, and uh, we'll, we'll play it for you now. Giorgio, thank you for joining us today on a lovely Monday here in uh, Laguna Seca. Really? The sun is shining, the bikes are going, and we've got uh, Pirelli tires on all the bikes. It's very good. Fine. I like it. I like it because it's a good opportunity to see many friends as well. Uh, and let's hello to some riders, American riders, who to run in these uh, days and play as a teacher for all the others. And so. Help our listeners out. What do you do? You're you're the big guy, but describe to us what your what your job entails. Well, I am in the company since um, almost 35 years now, and uh, I spend uh, almost uh, quite a good time, 80% of my time in motorcycle racing. When Pirelli start to make motorcycle racing again after the 60s, we start in 83 with the first uh, ties, first leads for Pirelli. And now here we are. Now I'm responsible for the motorsport uh, uh, of Pirelli. That means uh, all the uh, road racing and uh, off-road race as well. So our most important activities are World Superbike, and uh, then we got the endurance, we had the BSB um, as, a, as a championship, and on off-road we got the MXGP Enduro Championship as well. These are the most important activities we run. Apart of this, I'm responsible for the uh, economic result in terms of sales of racing tires, because okay. racing tires is a business as well. Okay. That's it. Okay. Before we sat down, we were talking a little bit about Suzuka. Yeah. And when I look at what you have here in World Superbike, where you're the spec tire supplier, yeah. versus the World Endurance Racing, which is, I think, maybe the only... It's a world championship yeah. with still open. a tire war. Yeah. How do you approach those two championships and what challenges do they uniquely bring to you? Well, Endurance is not uh, quite a, an open championship, I mean, very big because there are just two brands that really play this year, that are Bridgestone and Dunlop, uh, with top teams. Uh, for us, Endurance is, a, is another field of testing because we need to prove that the tires we approve in this championship, in World Superbike Championship, are good for the endurance use as well. And that means uh, for the national use and for the customer, final customer use. So endurance for us means uh, to race uh, in a different conditions. So night, in the morning, uh, in the evening, uh, uh, different temperatures, humidity on the track, 
let's run with the same bike with three different riders, different tools, different right. weights. Um, no way to change and set up precisely the bike. Uh, so less sophisticated than superbike because sometimes uh, my question is okay if I if we are able to prepare tires for this kind of bikes what it will happen in the moment I put these tires on a bike that is not exactly the same as got having got the 10 engineers around for any parts suspension engine electronics so we at the end this product has to work on the standard bikes your bike and uh, have to help you to not having problems. So if a product is too sophisticated, needs certain temperatures to work, have uh, a range of uh, asphalt to work, you risk to spend your money and throw away the money after to fill up because the tire is destroyed. So we have to build some robust products for the market. And endurance help us a lot on this. A part of this in France, for the 224 hours, we got a lot of uh, privateers that are equipped with rally, so we attend them. So it's another field of testing for us. Uh, okay, sometimes when we got good bikes like Kawasaki in the last uh, six years, we won for 24 hours. But for the championship, we we, have, we are several years we haven't got a, really a team who make all the championships. Uh, but it's good. But it's good to prove something. Now we are involved more in Suzuka because we made an agreement with Moriwaki on that and we are testing with them in order to make the Japanese championship and the 8 hours Suzuki as well. What do you think are the biggest things you've learned in the endurance championship and what were the biggest things you've learned so far in, in Superbike? Well, um, endurance for us is, uh, is uh, important because it takes one part of the range we got. As you know, we got uh, a rear range from SC0 to SC2 and then uh, front from SC1 to SC3. Actually, SC2, SC3 front are more ties related to the endurance, okay. especially SC3, okay. while uh, as a rear ties, SC1 enough and SC2 are more related to the endurance. SC0, SC1 front more related to the world superbike. So in order to prepare a range for the market, you need to, to get both. Okay, okay. What are the challenges of being the spec tire supplier to a series? Because it seems like your good days, no one really hears about. You only hear about the bad days when there's something wrong with the tire. This is a matter of a, of a play. Uh, but the, the important thing is to play in the right way. I mean, uh, we, we got a model in a World Superbike that's allowed to us to keep the product updated and work on development of the product all the years long. To give you an example, uh, during one World Superbike season, we test more than 10 different front and uh, 20 different rear tires. And at the end of the season, we got an idea, a clear idea, which will substitute the range we got on the market with a new updated product. Especially because you test with all the bikes and several riders, different conditions. Race one, race two, in which with people could change their mind, uh, their mind and chose something different. So the development is really making happy the rider and the team to work with us. Because if you give them always the same product, they will be bored in two race time. But if we allow them to, let's use their knowledge, their skills, uh, and the development of the bikes is followed by the development of the tires, the thing improves for all of us. 
if we just put a limit with the tire to a team, to a manufacturer, to a riders, we will learn anything. And they will be bored about it. Yeah. I know you mentioned race tire sales as a part of the, the actual business. What other metrics do you use to gauge uh, how, I was going to say successful, but how worthwhile it is to be in a series like World Superbike or or in endurance or well to be to be in a market is is important to understand the final user needs uh today i'm here just to look at this to have got the evidence about this no um so to let these people test our ties and understand their needs uh, looking at they where they got uh, is important for us to thinking about the product of the future to let today uh, Chris Ulrich or Tony Elias test our race tires of yesterday, even on a standard, most standard bikes, means for us to have a good feedback. And this is something we always need because you cannot just live with uh, Johnny Ray or Chad Davis comments. Do you measure then your success by seconds on a stopwatch? Do you measure it on how many tires sold over a year? How much marketing exposure? They were a combination of everything. Yes, they were different times. Uh, before the crisis, 2009, the the target was always performance, performance, performance. Every year you look in order to improve your lap time everywhere. Uh, when the crisis comes and the the money, the people has to pay money and get products and. Uh, look really at the result of a product for, before to spend the money we learn we trust to work a little bit more in terms of stability of a product enlarge the capability of a tire to be able to answer to different needs uh, more elasticity and this and so in the last nine years we work more in order to have more robust products and that means in terms of the race result to have a a better and in, to keep the level of a lap time for more laps you can and finish the race without destroying completely the ties. That means giving the ties to these people to allow them to, have, to make more miles and to use more of the ties uh, during the events. Track days are important and is another feature we, we look at at the World Superbike race. When you when you warm the ties to go in in a day like that, and then tomorrow you would like to use the same tire again, so the cycle, the temperature cycle becomes important. You cannot have a tire just after one warming decade completely. So to keep the tires able to run one or more session, even in a war superbike, means you are giving a product, a final product to these guys better to resist the base. What do you see? like the development of tires going? Like, is it learning more about the carcass uh, material or the way that the tire is built? We have to respect the championship, the teams and, uh, and the riders. So we cannot change dramatically our tires during the season. Even because now with the rules we got in Friday, you got just two practice and we have to prepare the bike, set up the bike and start the first race. So. Usually we just make some adjustment in terms of compounds and we always keep with us the reference in order that the new one could be immediately, the rider could immediately say it's better or worse. 
this condition works and never not. Uh, for instance, last year we raced here uh, um, with ST0, both race on the back. This year we race mostly with a new spec. Saturday, 55% uh, of riders choose the new one, the 35 SC0. Yesterday, 90% use the new one. So this is the way we work and let the teams understand the new tire in order to make the right development. They have to trust in it, use it, and have a result of a race. If we got all this data, come back to us, okay, we know now that in Laguna Seca the new tire is better than the standard one. Maybe, maybe the championship limits you in this, but do you see tire technology advancing more with the compound and the materials or with the tire design and the carcass? Well, for sure, all about the compound is more easy to manage because you just change the surface, nothing else, and uh, less costly effect usually, and uh, gives more result because from chemical point of view, the development of of a producer or supplier is very high and they are always proposing us new material to to play with. From a point of view of the carcass and profiles, we are more linked to the rules now, they give us the limit of rim size. So we were wide of 3.5 and 6 inch on the back, you cannot make so different ties in terms of profile or carcasses. Carcasses play uh, the, the casing might change, we are uh, now running some tests, but that is something we have to do in private test, uh, where the teams makes a common test, because if you arrive with a new carcass in, in, in a race, that is too much, because suspension needs to change too much and you haven't got the time to do it. One of the things we joke about on the podcast is that two things you should never discuss with another motorcyclist or which oil to use and which tires to buy. <laughs> how, would, how would you define or describe um, how Pirelli is different from its competitors on the market? What makes you special compared to everyone else? Why should I go buy your tires? Nah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I think it's a matter of uh, trust, it's a matter, it's a matter of uh, credibility. You have to be on the market, you have to be on the racing, you have to be there and remain there and make uh, the race you are doing, the race you are doing your, uh, uh, and using your ties, happy about this and loyal to you. And to do that, you have to be there, you have to work, you have to develop constantly. Because in our world, in racing, motorcycle racing, car racing, if a competitor really got an advantage, in one race to race, every rider will leave you. They will not pay your tires just to remain with something that lose seconds or tenths with the others. So to keep updated product is almost and the most important part. But it's not enough because you can buy a championship, you can stay in a high level championship and care about this major and nothing else. But to be able to produce and sold the tires to all the clients, all the user really, makes the difference. In my opinion, Pirelli is making this difference. We've seen a lot of changes in the superbike segment and super sports segment. Well, maybe not the super sports segment so much, but in the recent years, bikes are putting out 200 horsepower, uh, electronics are very important. How does that affect your business? Like on a, on a business level and also like yeah. on a technology level? 
All right, we we are working in this uh, world with different classes. So you can really follow the trend of the different classes in order to understand what's happening on the market. Because it is true that the 600 Supersport haven't got any, any kind of market. But all the people who like to uh, enjoy the truck usually has got one 600 to ride. The 1000 Supersport bikes are is a really little market, but is really important for the brands to be there in order to show they got a very massive bike. 300 class now is increasing like a beast everywhere in the world and it will become for sure an entry level for racing very important. And if you look at all these trends, you are able to understand what is the time to do for who, what is the right time to prepare something new for what. Sure, the business at the end of the year is something that you are measure on and so you have to respect this part as well but you can be and remain in this business only if you understand the trends for the future what do you see for the future oh, <laughs> what we can see we are we are trying to share with uh, the promoters we work with uh, the most intelligent understanding this and prepare the class the space for new classes understand how much to keep other classes maybe a little bit more quiet if the technology race is too high to consider because we are not in MotoGP. We are racing in, in a different field. Um, and so the future for sure in a different area of the world is quite different. Sure. But the increasing of a 300 class is the most important trend that we can see really? since uh, two or three years ago. Is that because in the markets that we see growth, so like Southeast Asia, India, China, those are bikes that wouldn't necessarily run Pirelli tires, or or why do you say that? Geographically, it's important to understand how this market will become interesting from a business point of view. Some markets start with a moped, then 125, 80, 125, 150. Now already they pass to 300. How long they will take to run in 600, 1000, we don't know. But for sure, you have to tend and follow these trends and be ready for that. When Dorna started talking with us about the 300 Supersport Championship three years ago, just talk because the championship starts this year, we immediately prepared the tires for that because that will be ready. And before they start in Australia, they start in Malaysia, in Italy, and after two years, they arrived to the World Super Sport Championship. This year, they start in US, they start in uh, UK next season. So, everything is growing, but we have to be ready and prepared with the right product for them. If not, someone else will do it. Sure. Did you have to restructure your business at all after 2009 or change the way you approach or think about the industries? Yeah, we did because at that time, uh, after 10 years of continually grow, we saw something going down and so we have to understand, okay, the people, there are less races around the world, there are less possibility to buy new bikes, so how the people will enjoy to ride this bike in the future? And the answer was the track days, the answer was the, the people who run uh, racing for fun and maybe leave uh, some national championship a complication with the federation, the rules, uh, uh, 
uh, and spend less money to go on a racetrack but they still go on a racetrack because their road is always too difficult to run and this was the change and so prepare the right product for this kind of usage was the main target and so we recover all the position well i think i'll let you go thank you for your time really You're appreciate welcome. having you on the show nice it's time for your turn now yeah just about <laughs> that's why i gotta get going thank you i really appreciate it all right then. cheers all right quentin i think that wraps up this show interesting stuff from giorgio um thank you to pirelli for uh inviting me down to their track day and having uh that event again this year it was great and you know thank you for to giorgio and his team for for spending a little time and putting together this interview for us and our listeners we really appreciate it um good world superbike week we uh hopefully the series continues to, to keep growing i'll be curious to see where the rules the rules take us for the 2018 season because i think there's going to be a shake-up uh for what um just just between whether or not there's a spec tire, whether or not uh or sorry not a spec tire, spec ECU, whether or not there's oh, yeah. um if we're just racing production bikes like we're supposed to be. And you know what they should do? They should have kickstands on them. That way at that the, would be on the, the line, on they the line. have to they have to line them all up and you have to run to your bike and put the kickstand up. Le Mans start, but not with the guy holding the nope. bike. It has to be on the kickstand. Yes. And we're gonna see a lot of I could see just you know people getting really super technical like how do we get like a quick a quick stand like <laughs> quick shorten stand. it we could shorten quick, it to a q stand quick stands up <laughs> quick stands up oh, just like phew, like we're like, uh, like what we're saying like it like it's retractable yeah, yeah that's the quick oh, stand that's right? the quick stand <laughs> trademark that shit quick stand it's like a quick stand that goes up like quicksand <laughs> Don't get stuck in quicksand. Get a quick. We'll work on it. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna market test that. We're gonna figure it out. We'll come back to you. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, a, that's enough. We'll say thank you to AGV and Dionise for sponsoring this episode. Yes. Thank you. They make motorcycle gear that's inspired by humans. If you need some motorcycle gear, you can stop by their D stores. They're in San Francisco, Orange County, Chicago, Orlando, New York, and soon to be in LA. Right on. Kickstands up. Good talk. See you out there. <laughs> that, I thought I was going to get away with it. <laughs> thought I was going to get out of this one without it. No. Nope. You said punishment without even uh, knowing that you. <laughs> you're the worst. You're just the worst. Oh. Uh.